Precious God, we thank you that your word is pure. Your word is clean. Your word is righteous. Your word is good. And we thank you, blessed Lord, that your word grows. Lord, as we look at your word here this morning, give us understanding, give us insight into your kingdom. Help us to see that your kingdom is not a kingdom that stays small, even though it has small beginnings. But show us, O oh precious God, that you delight to use what is low and weak and despised in the world. And then you grow it, O oh Lord, so that its growth is from you and so that you get all the glory and the honour and the praise. Precious God, as I preach your word this morning, fill me with your spirit, even as Danny was preaching before, that I may preach faithfully, with power and with conviction, and that you might get all the glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are many things in this life that grow. Children, they start off small, they're born, and that's something that Akuntia Mahesh and uh, Tallinn and I are thinking about. Uh, very recently, they start off small and yet they grow up so quickly. They grow up so quickly. What else grows in this life? Bank accounts, hopefully. Gardens, you plant them, they grow. Clutter in your home, it starts off small, one or two things maybe. Then you have children, time goes on, you keep more things and you just can't throw them away. And suddenly the clutter grows and grows and grows. And very soon there's too much clutter. And you start to realise it. What else grows? Knowledge. Knowledge grows and that's why we go to school. That's why we learn. That's why we go to university. And that's even on the job we, we learn. And with all these things, they start somewhere. They start off small. And yet they grow. And they grow and they grow. And these parables that we're looking at this morning of the mustard seed and the yeast, or the mustard seed and the leaven, Jesus is showing us that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven likewise grows. And the kingdom of heaven that we see here is the sphere of salvation. It's God's reign in his people's hearts. It's his church. In that same way as a seed and as leaven and yeast grow, we will see that God's church and God's people grow. Now the first parable there, the parable of the mustard seed, I'll be tackling them, the mustard seed first and then the, uh, the yeast afterwards. The parable of the mustard seed shows us the growth of the church in the world. And also the, the parable of the yeast shows us the growth of grace in a believer's heart. And for both of these parables, we will see that there are small beginnings, there is sure growth, and then there is a result, a completion of the, of the work that was started. So have a look with me at verse 31. The mustard seed, small beginnings. Verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field, though it is the smallest of all your seeds. Let me stop there. The mustard seed. There it says a mustard seed, or it can be translated a grain. 
And as I was saying in the children's talk, they're one to two millimetres in diameter. They're very small. And to the people at Jesus' day, his audience, they would be the smallest of the seeds that we planted in the ground. If you can imagine the seed, one millimetre thick, it's not very thick at all. And the thing is, those seeds are small. They seem like nothing. And if you knew nothing about seeds and you saw this and, and, and someone said to you, this, this is going to, going to grow to be a tree, surely you would think they were strange. Surely you, you would think that they're pulling your leg. Surely something this small could not grow to be a tree. But yet we do know seeds. We do know that something this small can grow. And so Jesus uses these parables here to show what the kingdom of heaven is like. God's kingdom, his church, ruled over by Christ, starts off small. In Acts, in the first chapter, in Acts 1.15, Jesus has ascended into heaven. And his church, the gathered group of believers, how many of them are there? If you remember when Jesus was crucified, they fled from him. They scattered like sheep. And yet, in Acts 1.15, in Acts 1.15, it says that there were 120 believers there. Only 120. And yet, what was their assignment? Jesus said to them, make disciples of Israel? No, no. Make disciples of all nations. Now, can you imagine being given that command and there are 120 of you? And Jesus said, you know what? Out of all the millions and millions of people, and they didn't even know the extent of the earth at that time as much as we do now, I'm going to get you to make disciples of all nations. Can you do that for me? Surely that would seem impossible. And who were they? Were they gung-ho evangelists at the time who'd had training for years and years and years and years? Had they gone to Bible college for, for 15 years, as, as some Bible college students feel? No, they were fishermen. They were tax collectors. They were servants. They were commoners. They were nobodies. And yet God gave them, 120 of them, he gave them the commission to make disciples of all nations. Surely this task to them would seem impossible. Like you have this giant mound of dirt and yet you're told to shift that mound of dirt to somewhere else and all you're given is some tweezers. Surely it seems impossible. There are small beginnings. Abram in Genesis 12 is told that he would be made into a great nation and yet at the time he didn't have any children. A great nation, and yet he didn't have any children. And even more than that, he he was told that all the families, all the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And again, he didn't have any children. And then he had one child, one son, Isaac. And was all of this meant to happen through one son? Or take Elijah in 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, and you're welcome to turn with me there. 1 Kings 19, I'm going to be flipping through, through to different parts. 1 Kings 19, that can be found on page 351. <clears throat> 1 Kings 19, starting at verse 13. 
And this is after Elijah has fleed, has fled, sorry. After he's defeated the prophets of Baal, verse 13 of chapter 19. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then the voice said to him, this is God speaking, what are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 14, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Can you imagine how Elijah would have felt? One man, one man against all of unfaithful Israel, meant to call them back to repentance. Gideon in Judges 7 to defeat the Midianites. He has 32,000 soldiers and, 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 and maybe that will be enough. And yet what does the Lord do? I'm sure you know it well. The Lord says, no, that's too many. <laughs> that's, that's too many. Let's, let's cut them down. So the Lord cuts them down and then cuts them down even further. And what are they, who, who is Gideon left with? 300 men. 1%, less than 1% of what he had in the beginning. Take Jonah, for example. Jonah, what is his commission? He's meant to preach judgment to a city of thousands and thousands, the enemy city of those who hated Israel. And who is he? Does he have protection, even one person? No. One man. One man. And humanly speaking, all of these odds are bad. No, in fact, they're impossible, humanly speaking, and yet we will see here, as we look at this parable in, in, back in Matthew 13, that God chooses to use what is small, what is weak, what is despised in the eyes of the world. In Matthew 11, 25 to 26, Jesus says, he, he gives his father praise and he says, Blessed are you, O God, for you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you've revealed them to little children. You've revealed them not to those who are wise and understanding in the eyes of the world, but to little children. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you may know it well. Verse 26, Paul says, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. The thing is God delights in using small beginnings. And that's the way God often works now. He takes a small church, and that's what happens with church plants, for example. God takes what is small, and he blesses it, and it grows. So not only is there, are there small beginnings of his kingdom, not only are there small beginnings of his church, but have a look with me at verse 32. It's a kingdom that grows. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. It grows and it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. 
The thing is, those early believers in Acts chapter 1, 120 men and women in an obscure region that no one else in the world really knows about, God uses it to spark a movement of God that has grown and spanned even to Australia and around the world. And in Acts, again and again, we hear the phrase, God added to their number, those who are being saved. And again and again, the word of God continued to multiply and increase and abound. And as people are saved, God's church grows. God's church starts off small, but it grows and grows and grows. Abram had Isaac, one son, but through this line, Israel is formed, a great nation of millions of people. And through his seed, through his offspring, eventually Christ would come, through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. Elijah, one man, used by God to defeat the the prophets of Baal, to defeat King Ahab and Jezebel, and to, to be used by God to turn Israel away from Baal, to the one true living God. Gideon with his 300 men, they utterly defeat the Midianites. Jonah's message humbles an entire city. God delights to use small beginnings and to work through them to grow his kingdom and to work his plans and his purposes. Now you may maybe heard of a missionary called Adoniram Judson. And he was a missionary to Burma, now called Myanmar. And Adoniram Judson, he laboured relentlessly for six long years in Burma, preaching the gospel, telling people of the good news of Christ again and again and again and again for six long years until he saw one convert, until he saw one person bow the knee to Christ. But after his death, 31 years later, there were 210,000 Christians recorded in Burma. The Lord starts off small, but he delights to grow his kingdom. And maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you've grown tired of telling people the gospel. Maybe you've been tired of telling your relatives the gospel because again and again and again, they, it, it just doesn't seem to get through to them. It just seems to hit a brick wall. Maybe you've grown weary for praying, in praying for them, in praying for their souls. Maybe you have unbelief in your heart here this morning. Maybe a lack of trust and faith as you come to God. Do you doubt his power to save? Do you doubt that God grows his kingdom? Friends, we need to take that unbelief to God. We need to repent of it and we need to remind ourselves of God's power and his willingness to grow his kingdom. And particularly something that has happened to us recently and recently our church has lost some members and our prayers go with them and it is sad and yet we must not lose heart about what God is doing in this church. Do not despair God in his timing grows his church. God in his timing builds it up. And that is our prayer as members go out that they would be used to build up God's church elsewhere.
continue to trust in God's promises, even though, even though you see God's church sometimes floundering, God's church sometimes small, trust in his promises because God delights to grow his church. Have a look with me at the second half of verse 32. What is the result of this growth? It is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. And what happens is that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. It becomes a tree. It doesn't just look like a tree, however. Birds come and they nest there. The word there, perch, translates to dwell there. The idea is to make their home there. It's a place where they can make their nest and they settle down there. God's people, as they come into his kingdom, they become citizens of his kingdom and they become part of it. In Ezekiel 17, the chapter that I read out before, and in chapter 31 and in Daniel 4, different kingdoms are pictured as trees. And Ezekiel 31, particularly with Assyria, it's pictured as this, this great tree through which all the nations of the earth come and, and, and dwell under its, and under its branches. And, and in Ezekiel 17, which I read out, we have this promise after Babylon, Israel would become a great tree which, which birds would come and nest in its branches. And here we have Jesus picking up on this, this fulfillment that the kingdom of God would spread out its branches and not just be for Israel, but be for all the nations of the earth, that birds of the air, people from all nations and tribes and tongues, would come and take shelter in this kingdom, under this tree. And the thing is, as God's kingdom, as his church grows and grows and grows, it doesn't just look good, but it's a place of shelter for people around the world. And that is why we tell others the gospel, because we are birds of the air who have come and, and sheltered and come under these branches of this great tree of God's kingdom. And we desire that others would come as birds of the air and nest in these branches too. This is why we support missionaries, because our desire is that all the nations of the earth would hear about Christ, that the birds of the air from all nations would come into this kingdom. There wouldn't be just a kingdom which grows, but a kingdom that would bear much fruit, because we would see that Christ would be honoured and loved and worshipped and adored among all the nations, that he would be king over all the earth. And that is why we love to gather even here this morning at church as a sign that we have come into God's kingdom together. It is not just that we are individual birds and we stay, stay away from each other. No, we have come together as birds under one tree and that is why we gather and that is why we'd love to come together and worship God because together we are birds taking shelter together in this one tree which is God's kingdom. And so we've seen that God's church starts off small like a mustard seed and yet God delights to give it growth and that it grows and grows and grows that all the nations would come to know this kingdom and come to know the king of this kingdom. But have a look with me at verse 33. This is the parable of the mustard seed. First half of verse 33. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour. 
Now, the second parable is similar in some senses to the first parable. There's small beginnings, it grows, and there's a great result. And yet specifically, this, this deals even more inwardly than the other parable. It deals more intimately and closely than the other parable does. And leaven elsewhere in the Gospels, in Jesus' teaching, represents something bad, sin, false teaching. And what Jesus is, is teaching in those other passages is that watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for this bad leaven. Why? Because it grows so quickly. And yet the same thing applies to this parable here. The same thing applies when Jesus uses it here in a good sense when he refers to the work of grace within a soul, God's influence over someone's heart. Now, how much leaven is needed to make bread? If you've made bread before, it's not much. Compared to the dough, it's not much. It's like putting one drop of dye into a bowl of water. What happens? Does that dye stay where it is? Have you ever seen someone put a dye in a water and just expected it to, to, to stay as a very small blob? No, it spreads and spreads until it fills all of the water. It disperses and permeates through the whole water. And that's what we're going to see with this leaven, this yeast. Now, in salvation, in regeneration, when God gives life to a heart, God's word is implanted in a heart and God brings them to spiritual life. In 1 Peter 1.23, it says, For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed, through the living and abiding word of God. In James 1.21, James says, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Notice there it says, implanted word. There is new life there. There is a new creation the heart starts to beat for Christ. Their mind starts to understand and receives the things of God. Their will lays hold of Christ. They're a new creation in Christ. They are saved, and yet it starts off small. It starts off small. And that is why we are told so much throughout the Bible that we must grow as Christians and not remain as immature Christians because that's what happens. It starts off small. It starts off immature, it starts off weak, and yet it grows and grows and grows. And in the same way as a little bit of yeast starts off small, it starts to grow and grow and grow. And as we grow as Christians, we see that it's like the yeast which, dis it, like the yeast which disperses throughout the large amount of dough. Now the dough there was probably about 22 litres of dough. 22 litres of dough, which in one sense seems like a crazy amount of dough. And yet, that's what yeast does. It grows. It grows. It grows. Now, we don't expect teenagers to be the size of a baby. We don't expect adults to be the size of a small child. And in the same way, when it comes to growing as Christians, it's the same thing. We, there's an assumption that the Bible has that Christians necessarily grow. They must grow. John Gill says this, The gospel reaches the conscience. It pierces the heart. 
It enlightens the understanding. It informs the judgment. It raises and sets the affections on right objects. It subdues the will and brings down all towering thoughts to the obedience of Christ. And as we grow as Christians, even though even though we, we see new Christians and, and, and the word has not affected every area of their life yet, as we grow as Christians, different parts of the areas of our life starts to come under the control of God's word and his ways more and more and more. Our minds start to come under the influence of God's word more and more and more. Our conscience starts to be influenced less by the things of the world and more by God's word. Habits, old habits which are sinful are now no longer precious or good to us. Habits of godliness that once seemed boring and dull now seem more attractive, to be more delightful. Behavior, more and more of it comes under the control of, of, of God's word and his grace. It's also important to recognize, as the children did in the children's talk, that it's God who gives the growth. It's God who gives the growth. Yes, we must expend our energy to be holy. Yes, we must seek to grow in grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we must, we must discipline ourselves to godliness, and yet it is always in reliance upon God who gives the grace. It is God who gives the growth. And something that is brought out in this parable that is not brought out as much in the first is that it is an inward work. Unlike the... the Unlike the, the mustard seed, which, which as soon as it starts growing, it starts to sprout above the earth and grows. And yet when yeast starts to grow, we don't see it inside grow and grow and grow. We see something on the outside, and yet the yeast, we don't actually see the yeast itself. There's an inward and hidden work. The thing is, in the Christian life, it is not about changing your behavior. That is mere moralism. It is not about changing your habits. It is first a change of the heart. It is a change of the mind. It is a change of the, the inner person and the outer life, the behavior, results. It's not about getting our lives together or looking good on the outside. The Pharisees had that in spades. It must come from the heart. That is why... In and of ourselves, we cannot be Christians. It's why in and of ourselves, we cannot change our own selves, our own hearts to be Christians. No, God's word must be implanted. Our hearts must be born again by God. And something, a way that we can apply this is that we must never ignore, undermine, or suffocate even the smallest bit of grace in a believer's life. We must never ignore, undermine, or suffocate even the smallest bit of a true work of grace in a believer's life. You know that uh, new believers can sometimes be discouraged as they, as they look around, and, and sometimes we lay, we impose upon them burdens which are too hard at the time. Now, a regenerate person must show fruit, and yet they won't show it in every area of their life at this stage. Be patient, encourage them. Zechariah 4 verse 10 says, Who despises the day of small things? Who despises the day of small things? 
The, th- the thing is, we must not despise the day of small things, but rejoice, as that verse goes on to say. In Isaiah 42, verse 3, we see the servant of God, Jesus, how he deals graciously with his, pe- with his people. And it says these words. It says, and I want you to get this picture in your mind. It says, a, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Now in those days, a reed, uh, where they were geographically, there were plenty of, of reeds along the rivers. And reeds would sometimes break when you plucked a reed, sometimes uh, whatever you would be doing with it, and making an instrument, etc., it would sometimes break. Now would you, spend your t- would you spend your time fixing that reed? No. Why? Because you've got thousands of reeds that you can just go and pluck again. And yet it says here in Isaiah 42, as I just said before, it says a, a, a bruised reed or a broken reed, sorry, a bruised reed he will not break. But he deals with his, his people tenderly and graciously. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. You know when your candle gets down to that lowest flame and your temptation is just to, just to snuff it out. And there are times... Even if you are not a new Christian, there are times in your life when that that feels like you, a faintly burning wick. Sometimes you're in despair. Sometimes you lose sight of God's presence and his graciousness. And yet we have this wonderful promise that a faintly burning wick, he will not snuff out, he will not quench. In Isaiah chapter 40, in Isaiah chapter 40, and you can turn with me there. If you wish, Isaiah chapter 40, and that can be found on page 715. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11, 714, page 714. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him, but he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. The Lord deals tenderly with his sheep. And so in the very same way, we must deal tenderly with other believers who are new or who are despairing or who feel low and weak at the time. We must encourage them. And exhort them that the Lord is doing his work of grace in their hearts. What is the result of this growth? Back in Matthew chapter 13. What is the result of this growth? It says in verse 33, it mixes into a large amount of flour until it works through all the dough. Until all of it is leavened. That's the end result. All of it is leavened. You may know this verse from Philippians. It says, He who began a good work in you, and you may complete this in your heads, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, it says, May God himself... The God of peace sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That growth 
is not just for the sake of growth, but it has a result. The whole dough is leavened. The whole heart comes under the influence of God's grace. Sin will be no more when Christ comes back. The perfection, the perfection is not in this life, but it will come. It will come in every heart that has been bought by Christ and brought to him every bird, if I can mix these parables together, every bird that has come under the, under, under the great tree, every person that is in Christ, their heart will be fully free from sin when Christ comes again. Their whole soul and body will be blameless before him. Do you long to see Christ's kingdom grown? Not just in the world as we talked about before, not just in our church here, but in our own hearts. Do you long to see Christ's kingdom grown in the hearts of others around here, here, us, here us, around us here as well? Because God will grow his kingdom. If you're here this morning and there is no grace in your heart, there is no growth in your heart. You haven't take, taken shelter in Christ. You haven't taken shelter in his kingdom under that great tree where all the birds of the air come. If you do not belong to him and his kingdom, it's offered to you today. It's offered to you today. Don't belong to earthly kingdoms. Don't belong to the kingdom of self with yourself set as king over, over your own domain. It will perish. It won't last. There's only one kingdom that grows and is full and complete, and that is Christ's kingdom that grows and is complete and lasts. If you find yourself here this morning and you have never taken shelter, in Christ's kingdom, if you have never taken shelter in Christ, call out to him, cry out to him for his work of grace, that he would give new life to your heart. There is a blessed joy in seeing Christ. As Christians, there is a blessed joy in seeing Christ become Lord over more and more and more and more of our lives. He's Lord already, but, but, but in that very reality, as he comes more and more Lord over different areas of our life, there is a blessedness in that. But if you've never seen Christ as Lord over any part of your life, come to him. Dwell in his kingdom. And you will find out that Christ's kingdom is a kingdom that grows. Let me pray. Almighty God, we praise you and we glorify you because you have given us this kingdom. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us Christ. And Christ's kingdom is a kingdom that will never perish. It's a kingdom that, 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 that never stops. But as a kingdom, and he is a king, that you have installed forever as your king over all the things that your hands have made. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that your kingdom is a kingdom that grows, both in the world, both in our church here and in our hearts. We offer our hearts to you. Please 
We pray that your word would take root deeper and deeper even in our hearts here this morning. That that leaven, that yeast would grow and grow in our hearts. And that we would know even more so experientially this, that your grace, your grace would fill every part of our souls. And that we would delight to see the wondrous work that you work in our hearts and the hearts of those around us. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for those here this morning who do not know you, who do not know the joy that comes with being in your kingdom with you as king. Oh, Lord, we pray this morning that you would give them new hearts, that you would put yeast into their hearts, a yeast that is from you, a leaven that is, that is not bad, but a leaven that is from you, Eleven that grows and grows and grows. All for your glory and your praise. And we pray these things, Lord Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen.